Good evening and welcome to Tiski Sao. We have first off the Indian variant of coronavirus. Is it going to throw us off course in terms of the great unlocking? And why did Boris Johnson not do anything to control it for the past two months? We're also going to be talking about the latest from Palestine. Joe Biden has finally called for a ceasefire and the people of Palestine have gone on a 24-hour general strike. We've got a great guest lined up for you on that topic. And we are going to end with the most astonishing answer yet we have heard from a Labour frontbencher when they're asked what their vision is. Get ready to cringe. Dahlia Gabriel, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm feeling consistently gaslit by this weather. Like it's bright and sunny and then in a tiny moment just turns into pissing it down with rain. So I'm very, un, you know, sort of unnerved by it, but I'm doing well. <laughs> just never leave the house and it doesn't matter. It's, it works for me. You know, I'm just yeah. here on my computer, got streaming, doesn't, <laughs> raining outside, whatever. Sometimes I wander to the shops. That's all I can do. If it's raining, that's that's fine. Let's go straight on to our first story. The B16172 variant of coronavirus was first identified in India, and it is the single biggest threat to Britain leaving lockdown on schedule. That's because it's more transmissible. We know that for almost certain. It's potentially also more resistant to vaccines. That one we're less sure about. Much of this, as I've said, remains uncertain. But Boris Johnson has been clear that this could risk the current schedule of removing all COVID restrictions on the 21st of June. We're keeping uh, everything under very close observation. We'll, we'll know a lot more in a few days' time. So it's not changing your approach yet? We're keeping everything under very, very careful, close review. We're looking at all the data as it comes in from uh, places like uh, Bolton, uh, Blackburn, Bedford, uh, Sefton, other places, just looking at those curves, where they're, they're moving, trying to understand uh, whether the Indian variant is uh, more transmissible, and if so, by how much more it's transmissible, and also trying to understand to what extent uh, our vaccine programme has already uh, sufficiently fortified us all against it. And uh, I'm afraid we've just got a, a, a few more days of looking at that data. But as things stand at the moment, I can see nothing conclusive in the data to say that we uh, have to deviate from the from the present roadmap. But we've got to be cautious and we'll be letting people know in a, in a few days' time. So up for debate there is whether or not all restrictions will be re removed on the 21st of June. Remember, we were supposed to be able to go to, to clubs and to basically, you know, fundamentally go back to normal. Depending on how transmissible this new variant is, that could be at risk. That's the future. There are some suggestions that there were people in government who were concerned about the loosening of restrictions that already happened this Monday. That's because of the spread of this new, more transmissible variant. Sky has reported that urgent discussions were being held in Whitehall nearly two weeks ago over what to do about the Indian variant, with some advisers urging ministers not to proceed with this week's stage three lockdown lifting on Monday. Some scientists believe that decision to unlock was a mistake, while a Tory source said that some ministers were sympathetic to the idea the PM was pressing ahead too fast. This all makes sense. Again, lots of uncertainty. It could easily turn out to be the correct decision to open on Monday, but there are some significant risks here. And that's because while the vaccination program is, is going well, I think seven out of 
10 adults have now had their first dose of the vaccine. That still leaves 30% of adults without it. And if you include children who at the moment can't be vaccinated, 45% of the population remain unvaccinated. Now, we don't know quite how much more transmissible the Indian variant is, but it could be up to 50% more transmissible. And so it's easy to imagine how opening bars and restaurants, which are um, in many cases frequented by people who are under 40 who might not have been offered that vaccine yet, that that could create new surges and new cases. As I say, in terms of what implications this will have, what exact implications this will have for policy in Britain, there are still more uncertainties to, to work out. Something we do know, though, is that because of this variant, our schedule for unlocking is at a risk it wasn't at beforehand. You know, we were doing pretty well. If you remember what the what the politicians were saying, what the chief scientists were saying, it was it was almost getting close to, you know, everything is going as well as it possibly could have gone. That has all changed in the last two weeks, which raises the question, how did we get here? Why did Boris Johnson let us get here? I'm going to give you a timeline of how we got to this mess. And the key thing here is why it took so long for Boris Johnson to put India on the red list so that people would have to quarantine, go into mandatory hotel quarantine on arrival in Britain because of the prevalence of a variant of, of concern in, in India. Let's take you through um, the last couple of months. So the 22nd of March is the first key date I'm going to show you. Um, this is you know, the surge of, of COVID cases in India was, was really um, rocketing by this point, 372,000 weekly cases, which was triple the rate from three weeks before that. So you can see there's a huge outbreak. We talked about it at the time and still flights were coming into Britain. It wasn't on the red list. On the 24th of March, India's health ministry warned of a double mutant variant. Then on the 2nd of April, the UK announces that four countries would be added to the red list, including Pakistan and Bangladesh, but not including India. Then on the 6th of April, new daily cases in India pass 100,000 per day. Johnson refuses to cancel his trade trip to India planned for later that month going to go on to a few more dates in a moment. First of all, the thing to notice here, you've got a huge outbreak in India. We were talking about it at the time. Everyone was talking about it at the time because it was so shocking and, and awful. Um, still is, by the way. We also knew by that point in time that there was a significant variant of concern in India. Boris Johnson had a trade trip planned to India, which even though there were 100,000 cases per day in India, he did not cancel. He said, we're going to go forward with that trade trip. Pakistan and Bangladesh on the red list, India not for some reason. 15th of April, um, for the first time, the B1617 variant appears on official statistics of cases in the UK. That was with 77 cases detected. Then on the 19th of April, the number of cases with Indian variant rises um, to 103. Boris Johnson then finally cancels his trip to India and Matt Hancock announces India will be placed on the red list. However, it's not for another four days um, until red list restrictions come into force for travellers from India. Um, so you can see there lots and lots and lots of stalling. Um, it was a month between the period when the Indian Health Ministry warned of this new mutant and Britain introduced restrictions for travellers from, from India. So this could have been foreseen well in advance and nothing happened. Now, as I said, the key question here is why did 
India get placed on the red list three weeks after Bangladesh and, and Pakistan. Why would that happen? Now, the, the accusation against Boris Johnson is that's because he was trying to work out a trade deal with India, but not the other two countries. What the government are trying to push back and say is, no, there, was, there were epidemiological reasons why we made that distinction between India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, Matt Hancock, let's go to his defense of why this was a legitimate um, and sort of scientifically justified move. He said, the truth is that when we put Pakistan and Bangladesh on the red list, positivity among those arriving from those countries was three times higher than it was among those arriving from India. Now, that would be a good argument. Unfortunately, it doesn't tally with the data from test and trace. Um, so some of, this statistics, some of these statistics we've got from a great report in, in the mirror, I should say. I should credit them for this, really. And these are the proportions of people um, who tested positive for COVID-19 on arrival to Britain from Pakistan, which was 6%, from India, which was 5%, and from Bangladesh, which was 4%. That was from the period the 25th of March to the 7th of April. As you can see, they're very difficult to explain why Pakistan and Bangladesh were put on the red list, but India wasn't. It's also the case that India had more people coming in, actually, with, with, with variants of concerns than in Pakistan and, and Bangladesh. So absolutely no reason why they should have been treated differently um, when it comes to the science of all of this. That's why we think it was potentially because of the politics of all of this. Let's go to the politics. It's because Britain, or it seems to be because, Britain was desperate to sign a trade deal with the world's sixth largest economy. Um, that was certainly the suggestion in this morning's Politico playbook email. So in that email this morning, sort of gives you a big review of the, the news to come that day. Alex Wickham writes, why did they delay? Despite Downing Street's strenuous denials, there is barely anyone in Westminster who doesn't think the government held off putting India on the red list because Johnson had a trade trip to the country planned. Now, Wickham also referenced a source who suggested that senior scientific advisers were warning that India should be placed on the red list at least 10 days ahead of the cancellation of Johnson's trip on April the 19th. And Wickham had more info from the same source. So he writes, the same person said memos from British officials to staff based in India had queried if the trip ought to go ahead from late March onwards, as scientists scrambled to work out why infections were rocketing in the nation. This, they said, is underlined by notes on technical briefings on tracking variants, which note an Indian strain as far back as April the 1st, some seven weeks ago. Now, as I said, there are still a lot of unknowns about the precise details, the precise danger of this variant. But what we do know is that there are currently 2,967 known cases um, of the Indian variant or cases which have been identified in Britain, which is up 28% since Monday. So clearly something quite worrying going on. Dahlia, I want your thoughts on this. Yet again, it seems that we have had Boris Johnson put politics and so short-term economic interest ahead of public health. In terms of the economy, it's clearly going to backfire if he now has to, to delay the ultimate unlocking of the economy. But it does seem like no lessons have been learnt at all over the past 12 months. I mean, that is the story of Johnson's handling of the pandemic, isn't it? And I just want to say, you know, you think everything is under control and, you know, going as scheduled. And then you, someone whips out the phrase double mutant variant and you're like, oh, we're just puny puny humans like we don't stand a chance but um you know first of all it goes without saying that we've seen time and time again in this pandemic and it's been exposed by this pandemic 
um, something that we always knew, which is that bordering choices are political. There's there's always this kind of idea that borders are like necessary for scientific or objective reasons, um, but they are primarily governed actually by both geopolitical but also domestic political desires and powers plays. And we know that that from the fact that you know, despite the US having one of the highest per capita. Uh, infection rates that I don't think we've ever like we've had far less restriction on movement between the US and the UK than we have for other countries um, and where you know they've had a much lower per capita um, rate of infection but this is also I think I think there's two issues here right so there's the fact that again this is this problem with Johnson's way of handling this pandemic that has come back to bite us over and over again of sort of over-promising and over-committing and then making it very difficult to then leave space to make the decisions that are responsive to the actual conditions on the ground and to what is actually in the best interest of everyone. And that flexibility and expectation is so important with this virus because as we've known, its patterns are not entirely predictable. And we can see this by the massive spike in India. Um, you know, even though this, this virus has been with us for a year now, we haven't seen conditions like that until this particular moment. And we saw this in the UK at Christmas where, you know, Boris makes this big PR stunt about saving Christmas, which was all about the po politics and, and optics, only that to then turn around and give people 24 hours notice that they had to stay put, during which a lot of people just went ahead with their plans anyway. And we're seeing it again with this, you know, bombastic commitment that, you know, everything's going to go back to normal on the 21st of June. Um, and, you know, as if we are in complete control of that, but also that we are unlikely to actually have a complete return to, and I don't, I don't want to say normal, but a return to a time where what we can do is not so heavily defined and governed by this virus. And that's unlikely for a very long time not least because vaccination programs in the global south country in global south countries are thanks to you know vaccine vaccine protectionism in the UK and in Europe and North America that you know vaccination programs are not nowhere near where we need them to be but also because this virus mutates right and and we know that that possibility of a mutation that is you know as contagious or even more contagious um, and which can circumvent the vaccine and put us back into a very difficult position, that possibility is not small. It's not negligible. Um, it's very real. And yet this claim um, that we could put a date on when we're no longer have to going to manage living with this virus is an attempt at political point scoring that is detached from reality and actually damages our long-term ability to adjust um, to living with this virus in different in different ways, and we know this from from the past that overpromising leads to undercompliance and it leads to lack of trust. So we're in a situation now where even though many scientists have long been suggesting that you know opening up at the speed because of you know the variant um, that was discovered in India, but also because of the delays to um, AstraZeneca being given to you know younger people. The opening up at the speed that we were promised is not a good idea, but Johnson is finding himself in a position where he has to, where it feels impossible to, to take decisions that are scientifically and medically sound. But I also think, and this is perhaps a bit more, this is related to that point and is perhaps not necessarily 
I think it just kind of goes to, again, like the fragility of the progress in comparison to the way that Boris Johnson wants to portray it, um, which is, you know, through this idea that, you know, we can place dates on when we're going to to go entirely back to 2019, um, to how things were in 2019. And I think it comes down as well to this fact to this idea that the government strategy has been to sort of treat and talk about the vaccine as this kind of fix all magic bullet that's going to take us back to before this was ever, you know, in our lives. But we know not only because of the possibility of mutations, but also the increased likelihood of other pandemics, um, thanks to, you know, as a result of climate change and, and, and other reasons that the vaccine is a huge development. It's a it's a great development. It's a brilliant development, but it's not a fix-all. Um, building the infrastructure to cope with pandemics, to cope with possible mutations and variants that can circumvent the vaccine, and that includes things like a robust and reliable test, track, and trace system, a robust social safety net so that people can make decisions based on you know whether they can keep what is in the best interest of their health and the health of their community rather than, you know, having to go to work, even if it's not safe, um, but also infrastructures of care so that people are not sort of left to fend them for themselves for months on end when these kinds of public health crises happen. Developing that infrastructure alongside a vaccine is actually the only way that we can have a resilient or long-term sense of normalcy. And I think that to an extent, the vaccine is offering a, a dangerously reductive sense of hope that, you know, is allowing the government to kind of paper over the fact that they haven't learned the lessons from this pandemic to actually prepare us for the very real possibility of, you know, vaccine resistant mutations and other public health crises that are likely to become more regular as a result of climate change. One of the reasons that countries like South Korea were so effective in managing this pandemic even before there was a vaccine and even before we understood even how to treat the, the virus um, well was because they learned the lessons from SARS and they built the infrastructure and were able to rely on that infrastructure that had been built as a result of the SARS pandemic. But I'm not convinced that the government has done the same here and that that worries me. And um, we're going to go through one other controversy today. This has been, again, about travel, but not so much about the, the holes in the restrictions in the past, but what the new rules are and the confusion about what the new rules are. So if you weren't aware, travel is no longer, or holidays are no longer banned. That's since Monday. We now have a traffic light system where countries are either on the green, the amber, or the red list. Um, on the green list, you can go there with fairly few restrictions. The red list is as it always was. You're not supposed to go there at all. The amber list, government ministers have been fairly ambiguous about when you, you should and shouldn't go on visits to those places. Now, that was a line of attack from Keir Starmer to Boris Johnson today at PMQs. Um, let's take a look at that exchange. Mr Speaker, I think everybody would agree that having moved 170 countries to the amber list, absolute clarity is needed about the circumstance in which people can travel to an amber country. Yesterday morning, the Environment Secretary said people could fly to amber list countries if they wanted to visit family or friends. By the afternoon, a government health minister said nobody should travel outside Britain this year and travelling is dangerous. 
The Prime Minister said that travel to Amber Country should only be where it's essential. By the evening, the Welsh Secretary suggested some people might think a holiday is essential. The government's lost control of the messaging. So can the Prime Minister answer a really simple question that goes to the heart of this? If, it, if he doesn't want people to travel to amberless countries, if that's his position, he doesn't want them to travel to amberless countries, why has he made it easier for them to do so? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I think after more than a year of this, I think the Honourable Gentleman would understand that what the public would like to see is some effort to back up uh, what the government is saying, uh, to, to deliver uh, clarity uh, of messages. And, and on his point about legal bans, as he knows, we're trying to move away from endlessly legislating uh, for everything and to rely on guidance and, uh, and asking people do, to do the right thing. And it is very, very clear, Mr Speaker, you should not be going to an amber list country, except for some extreme circumstance, such as the, the serious illness of a, of a family member. You should not be going to an amberless country on holiday, uh, Mr. Speaker. I can imagine he wants to, uh, to take a holiday, but you should not be going to an amberless country on holiday, uh, Mr. Speaker. And, uh, if you, if you do go to an amberless country, then as I say, uh, we will enforce the 10 day quarantine uh, period. And I think that exchange actually summarizes what's been so kind of stupid about this whole COVID debate. Because for me, of things to attack the government for, some ambiguity about what the amber you know, category means when it comes to travel is kind of unreasonable because there are always going to be some areas of ambiguity. I think it kind of makes sense to say the green countries you can be fairly relaxed about, the red countries are going to be you know, almost impossible to go to, and the amber ones is going to be a real rigmarole to go there. But if you really need to for a funeral or for an for operation, you, you can do. That's not just to say that you know, Keir Starmer was wrong to use that as the attack line, though. It's also, you know, Boris Johnson's response to that was so similarly stupid, right? He didn't say, look, we're going to need to have some ambiguity when it comes to COVID rules. The world isn't particularly black and white. It's it's fine to have some areas where, the, you know, the rules might seem quite arbitrary, but that's, you know, that's just us trying to respond to a complicated situation. No, instead, he says, you Labour Party, I think what the government wants to hear is you backing everything we say. No, so it's, it's just this completely stupid politicised argument. Anyone who watches that exchange is absolutely none the wiser. And when it comes to what political debate we should be having about travel, it's not this issue as, oh, the public relations aren't good enough, the Keir Starmer classic line of the messaging isn't clear, what we need is clarity, what we need is clarity. It's like, you know, clarity might be fine. I'd, it's better to be clear than not clear, if you, if you can be clear. But the real issue here, the real problem with travel over the past six months, in fact, over the past 12 months, over the past 18 months, is that we haven't had a proper democratic, democratic debate about what we value. And I think the Indian variant is, is, is the key example here. I think if we'd had a proper debate back at the start of the year, where they said, look, we have two options. We can either basically make travel really, really difficult just for this short temporary period of time, as they did in New Zealand and Australia and Vietnam. And that will mean that we have way less uncertainty in our route out of lockdown. We could do that. We could decide that. Or we could decide that we think travel in between countries is so important um, that we're going to not enforce something along the lines of mandatory hotel quarantine. Now, we took the second decision. Well, I say we took the second decision. Actually, my point is we did not take that second decision because I bet you if they'd asked the public that, that question and had a serious grown-up debate, they would have gone for the first one. But no, what they did is they listened to 
basically the aviation sector, all of these vested interests who would prefer to take the short-term risk because the biggest risk for them is losing business, right? And then that's how we're in this messed up situation. So you've got the Labour Party who are just saying, uh, you know, we don't really have any political problem with anything you're saying. We just want you to say it more competently and more clearly. Then you've got Boris Johnson saying, I don't even know why you're crit critiquing me at all. We're in, a, we're in a public health crisis. You shouldn't even be in opposition. And then we're all just watching none the wiser. The media will lap it up because they love any kind of, you know, ambiguity. Oh, what if it's a, you know, you're allowed to go for a funeral. What if it's a funeral of your second cousin? Then are you allowed to go? Gotcha. And I, I just think it really demonstrates how, ridiculous so much of the public debate has been around this this pandemic and how much that means we've missed because there are serious serious debates we could be having which are of real consequence which are being missed because the media find it just so easy to report on uh, you know th this is unclear that's unclear anyway just something that personally frustrates me i just needed to get that off my chest Joe Biden has called for a significant de-escalation by both Israel and Hamas and has urged both parties to pursue a ceasefire. Now, this is an incredibly weak stance. It ignores that this is not a mere conflict, but an ongoing occupation, and it ignores how casualties have fallen overwhelmingly on one side. Just to call for a ceasefire, to call for, for both sides to stop exerting violence as Ash Sargar said in a recent show, it flattens the whole history, the whole context of what's going on here. However, whilst this is an incredibly weak statement from Joe Biden, it is still an improvement because up to this point, he has actually been resisting any call for a ceasefire whatsoever. So even the most tepid stance, he has been resisting, not just resisting, he's been blocking it at the UN. So some improvement. Meanwhile, in Palestine, a 24-hour strike has come to a close. Now, this is really significant, a strike across the whole of historic Palestine, all Palestinians taking part, or the vast majority taking part, shutting down businesses for 24 hours at protest, at apartheid, at occupation, at the airstrikes in Gaza. Now, during that strike, um, as is usually the case in historic Palestine, peaceful protesters were subject to intense repression by Israeli security forces, and that included this incident at the Damascus gates in East Jerusalem. So what you saw there was a peaceful protest and then the Israeli police throwing stun grenades at protesters. Now, a stun grenade, if you live in, in Britain like me, you probably never experienced one. Um, what that means is the police throw something at you that bangs so loudly, that flashes so brightly that you're completely disorientated. For a few seconds, you struggle to see um, and struggle to to hear. Completely disorientating, which is why everyone runs away because it's so you know, horrible to be around. That's the purpose. As well as those stun grenades, we've also seen over the last two days um, which is not new, by the way, but it's, it's come to, to light, been been raised, become more prominent over the last two days, is Israeli police have been spraying rancid water on Palestinians. Now, this is so, so appalling, really created a lot of a lot of shock on social media, quite rightly. We're going to show you a clip that sort of explains what's going on in this respect. This is reporter Mark Stone, um, and this is a clip from Sky News. And here in Sheikh Jarrah, about an hour ago, we saw... And something which happens a lot too at the moment, that is a, um, a, uh, a water cannon, but it's not of the type that you might see uh, in Europe or, or America. 
uh, because it's got stunk, uh, skunk water in, which is, uh, has a rancid smell, takes days to get off your, your skin. Uh, and um, what it does is it, um, they spray it ostensibly for crowd control. But, but I can tell you, because I was here and I saw it with my eyes, they were not controlling a crowd that needed to be controlled. They were controlling a small group of youngsters who posed no threat to them, and yet they fired the water cannon uh, into a Palestinian community and all over Palestinian houses. The Palestinians and uh, human rights groups say this is effectively a form of collective punishment. And lastly, uh, uh, down at the Damascus Gate a little bit earlier on, as part of this mass movement of, um, uh, of Palestinians, uh, uh, expressing their views. Uh, a group of Palestinians were walking out of the Damascus Gate of the Old City and up the steps there, uh, and then without any warning, the Israeli police threw stun grenades and everyone, everyone fleed. Again, uh, unnecessary crowd control. We've put this to the Israeli police. We've asked them why they're doing this sort of thing, uh, and they say where they, uh, where they make mistakes, they investigate. But you know, uh, I've worked here for quite some time, uh, and I can tell you that when you ask the Israelis for investigation, they say they're doing one, but you never actually get the results. Uh, those are the facts. That's what's happening here on the ground. Um, we do ask the Israelis for a response. They say they'll give it. Uh, often it doesn't come. So lots to talk about over the past 48 hours. That general strike, a form of resistance, appalling, grotesque repression you saw there in those two clips, and also a changing stance from the United States, from Joe Biden. To talk about all three things, I'm delighted to be joined by Nasser Al-Mazri, a Palestinian-American PhD candidate in political science at MIT and a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement. Most of our audience will be familiar with the purpose of a strike usually, is to, you know, to, to cause losses um, to your boss so that they have to listen to their workers. In this context, as a decolonial context or a context where you're fighting a state, what does a strike do? What, what's the strategy? What leverage is being is being used there? There are a number of different parts uh, that we can focus on here. So first, uh, this strike has beyond just having the economic consequences that it will have, which I'll discuss in a moment. Um, I think it was uh, important because it brought together Palestinian youth across all areas uh, where Palestinians uh, are living uh, and beyond Palestinian youth as well, of course. There's a bunch of civil society groups that were uh, sort of signed on to the strike as well. Um, but uh, historically, Palestinians have been very fragmented and uh, it's not just related to sort of internal struggles or ideology or location, etc. cetera, um, but it's just the fact that they live in different places and under different circumstances in refugee camps and other parts of the West Bank as Palestinian citizens uh, of Israel in historic Palestine, in Gaza, in Lebanon, etc. So I think that's one of the key components here. Um, but uh, to, to your, uh, more directly to the point here, uh, the strike um, had uh, significant consequences, I think, on the Israeli economy um, and sort of showed uh, sort of the, the power that Palestinians have. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the biggest sectors um, that, that sort of uses Palestinian labor uh, inside of Israel uh, is construction. And so there are something like 65,000 uh, construction uh, workers that come uh, from the occupied you know, West Bank uh, and come into Israel to work. Reportedly, 110 of them showed up out of 65,000 yesterday. And so you can imagine the consequences. I, I, you know, I saw some numbers that were in the ballpark of uh, $40 million you know, uh, of, uh, uh, were basically lost yesterday, which uh, I think translates to something like 30 million British pounds, you know. So I, I think, you know, if we're, if we're talking about numbers, right, this is just in one day. And you can imagine that the delays and the backups uh, uh, would become extremely costly. Um, and even be beyond, you know, sort of uh, the, the construction uh, industry, um, 
you know, 50% uh, or so of pharmacists uh, inside uh, of, you know, historic Palestine, inside of Israel, the um, Palestinian citizens of Israel, excuse me, um, you know, 50% of the pharmacists, they make up 25% of doctors and nurses, um, you know, more than half the construction workers. Uh, so we're talking about almost a fifth or, a, you know, around a fifth of, of, the, of the labor force um, didn't show up to work yesterday. Um, and so that, you know, you can imagine the consequences it had. Uh, you can imagine the pressure it puts um, on the Netanyahu government, uh, or well, on, on Benjamin Netanyahu and sort of this this uh, this process they're going through an attempt to form a government. You can imagine the consequences it has, as you say, for their bosses, right? Um, and so, yeah, the the uh, sort of the end goal here was to to leverage that power across all the places where Palestinian, Palestinians are living uh, in order to to sort of uh, make their voices heard um, in in a more direct, uh, material way, if you will. Let's talk about the other form of pressure being exerted on Israel right now, which is international. I'm calling it pressure might be being too kind to, to, to what Joe Biden is currently doing. But he has moved from, a, I suppose, a completely morally abject position, which is to say Israel has an absolute right to self-defense um, and therefore essentially you know, condoning um, the airstrikes in Gaza to saying what I want to see is a ceasefire. Is that a significant shift? Does that exert pressure on, on Benjamin Netanyahu? And you know, do you think that means a ceasefire will essentially happen quite quite soon now? Yeah, it's hard to say when it will happen. Um, I think there's there's something to think about here. I think on the U.S. side, right, Biden has, you know, obviously the U.S. has blocked Security Council resolutions uh, multiple times this week. Uh, but Biden is feeling the pressure um, and he has. And, he, you know, this is the same thing with his immigration policy recently that he backtracked on. Uh, you know, the, we were talking about covid uh, a little bit earlier and. and related to the patents, right? He's backtracked on a, a significant number of, of issues. And this is now, uh, you know, we're, the pressure is breaking through to him. What does it mean for an actual um, ceasefire? You know, I couldn't say if, uh, for certain, but it, it looks like, you know, the, the the negotiations that have been, you know, ongoing sort of behind the scenes, it appears to, to be at a point where uh, Israel has a desire to continue pummeling Gaza, um, you know, using this sort of collective punishment. And so the fact that uh, Biden is finally leveraging pressure on Netanyahu, uh, I would imagine in the next week you're going to hear, if not a ceasefire, you're going to hear uh, an outcome of rejected ceasefire by Israel, which I think could potentially bring the United States and, and Israel at, at sort of loggerheads uh, about where they're going. Um, I don't know for certain uh, if Netanyahu uh, uh, can withstand sort of Biden's pressure. We're going to find out uh, what he thinks he can do. Um, he's already taken uh, sort of actions that he wouldn't have taken uh, under uh, sort of uh, uh, you know, uh, Obama's uh, uh, presidency. Um, and so it's unclear exactly what's, uh, what is going to develop. But uh, I have a sense that in the next week or so, you're going to see some, uh, some conclusions uh, coming out uh, regarding uh, whether they're going to stop or not. Obviously, a, a ceasefire is urgently needed, mainly for the people who are living in, in, in Gaza, who are living through hell right now. At the same time, there is a, a danger that as soon as a ceasefire is announced, the world's media you know, say, oh, problem solved, quiet has happened again, quiet has returned, the pressure goes off Joe Biden, and the scenes um, I showed at the, the the start of this section of of Israeli police firing you know, skunk water at people, rancid water at Palestinians, the kind of thing, you know, it just seems so degrading, so dehumanizing, and throwing stun grenades at, at, at peaceful protesters, obviously the expulsion of citizens of, of Sheikh Jarrah. Um, the list can go on of the various oppressions which are separate from airstrikes in, in, in Gaza. Are, are you concerned that once a ceasefire happens, you know, Israel will essentially once again be off the hook? 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is not the first time that there's been uh, an extensive bombardment of Gaza. There's been, you know, coverage of it. And then uh, it sort of uh, went back to the status quo afterwards. It happened in 2014, 2008 and nine. You know, I could keep going back in time. Uh, and so I, I, I'm absolutely uh, with you that, that that is a potential danger. I think there's a couple things that are different uh, this time. Uh, so for the first time, uh, at least, uh, you know, um, in history, I'd say the first time in history, really, the U.S. Congress, uh, U.S. Congress people have made their voices heard regarding their concerns about not only uh, uh, Israeli actions, right? Concerns is a very light word. Uh, their their complete opposition to sort of Israeli violence, uh, but they've also called on the President of the United States uh, and other uh, of their of their you know uh, counterparts in Congress to to bring about an end of U.S. support. Uh, to Israel, especially the blank check that they provide to Israel every year. And so I think, uh, I don't think we should uh, wash that away uh, as nothing. I think this is uh, a meaningful move in the right direction. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of Congress uh, has, has moved to the left, I think, to the surprise of some folks in the United States. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of younger folks increasingly are aware of what is going on in Palestine and elsewhere uh, and, and are strongly support, uh, supporting uh, sort of changes in, in U.S. policy. And that relates to the second point, which is uh, a lot of this was broadcast on social media. Um, the, the traditional news media, um, you know, <laughs> you're not included, right? You, the, the work being done here is fantastic. Uh, but the traditional news media, we're talking CNN, Reuters, right, et cetera. A lot of these news media are not, they're not giving fair coverage to Palestinians. And, you know, I could, I could share tons of statistics on how much they cover uh, Palestinian deaths versus Israeli deaths, for example. Uh, so I, I think there's a significant shift uh, in sort of the uh, way people are understanding what's going on in Palestine, the views that people have. And I think it's going to come to a tipping point at some point in the near future. If it's not immediately after this uh, uh, sort of episode uh, of, of Israeli uh, violence, uh, then it will be in the near future because I think folks really are now understanding what is going on in Palestine. They're now uh, no longer uh, under the delusions uh, that the media has for so long uh, uh, sort of uh, presented, uh, you know, particularly the largest corporations in the media, I should say. And so um, I think that's a significant shift. But that being said, I think you're absolutely right. When things quiet down, people will, uh, you know, the status quo, returning to the status quo is not ideal. Gaza is still under siege. People still can't access uh, healthcare. People are, you know, the the, the families in Sheikh Jarrah are, are still awaiting a court uh, ruling on whether they're allowed to live in their homes that they came to after they were forced out, uh, you know, in in, uh, in the 1940s and, and 1950s. And so, uh, you know, this is, I think, um, definitely uh, a great concern of Palestinians. I think this momentum is starting to push Palestinians to talk uh, uh, across, you know, sort of these uh, "Quote unquote borders that that exist between them, uh, and so uh, there's there's a strong hope that uh, further organization will will continue to occur um, among, especially the the sort of re-energized youth uh, in Palestine. Uh, but uh, let's be honest, it's it's hard to to overturn oppressive regime uh, uh, policies, and so uh, this is going to be a, a difficult uphill fight. And so there needs to be a continuing spotlight uh, on what is going on. But um, yes, it's a concern. Yes, I think there's a lot of things different. And uh, I am actually, I think for the first time, uh, more hopeful than I am uh, uh, worried that the future will hold much of the same. We've had lots of lots of Palestinians on in the last two weeks who have sort of said there does seem to be a level of unity among Palestinians, both you know within historic Palestine and in the diaspora, um, to an extent that hasn't been seen you know recently. Um, so you know, with a speculative hat on. What kind of you know movements of resistance do you see 
going forward? What do you think will be most most prominent? You know, we've got this general strike as an example. Now, what should people be be watching out for? Do you think a continuance uh, of of strikes? I think you'll see. Um, I think this has been an immensely effective. It's a type of ta- it's a type of activity that can sort of focus folks on the same uh, uh, on the same target, which is you know in this case uh, sort of the 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 economy. Um, I think. One of the hardest things uh, is that uh, to, to, you know, to mobilize around the fact that there are so much divisions among Palestinians. And um, like I said, these, I'm talking about borders, the limitations for Palestinians to get uh, inside of, uh, uh, of Israel, uh, for the you know, people in Gaza to, to connect with those in the West Bank. So, you know, if I'm if I'm thinking forward, I think actions like the strike uh, will be at least the starting point. I imagine that coordination across, uh, uh, you know, across uh, time and place is going to be difficult, made more difficult by Israel. There's going to be, you know, sort of uh, there's been this attempt to sort of localize uh, the various struggles of Palestinians. And so I think you're also going to see one of the key, key, um, you know, uh, sort of groups here are going to be folks in the West, um, you know, sort of leveraging their, you know, political power to pressure their governments uh, to sort of uh, uh, continue. Uh, pushing change uh, in Palestine. It's a difficult question. It really is. It's, you know, the, the Palestinians, you know, the people that I've spoken to who have very close family on the ground, uh, you know, myself and, and others, um, they're, they're saying that, you know, people are not sure what's going to come next, but people are energized and they're looking for for the, the sort of the next thing. Um, and so I imagine they'll start with, uh, you know, a continuance of strikes. I imagine uh, you'll see some new organizations uh, or, or the combination of multiple existing organizations coming together. Um, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of question marks to be completely blunt, um, but uh, this is uh, more hope than than I think we've seen in a long time, uh, including from the older generation. I think that's something that really uh, really has inspired me is they are excited for the first time in a long time. Nasa Al Masri, it's a, a positive note to to end on in what's you know a, a situation where it's difficult to find positive um, notes. Um, thank you so much for coming on. We've 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 really appreciated um, you giving your time to us this evening. Thank you, Michael. In terms of public opinion in this country, very, very significant. Two more top footballers have taken out the Palestinian flag after a game. This was a Premier League game this time. Last time it was the FA Cup final. After a match against Fulham, Manchester United's Paul Pogba and Amadiallo held up a Palestinian flag. Now, I should say to you, earlier this week, a little uh, insight into my WhatsApp chats with Aaron Mastani. Aaron messaged me after the FA Cup final when two footballers have had held up the Palestinian flag. He said, if Paul Pogba, if Paul Pogba waves the, the Palestinian flag after a football match, it's over. Then two days later, it happened. Dahlia, I want to go to you on this. I know we, we normally avoid football when it's just us two on the shows because we struggle. Um, but it, it does seem like the the resistance to the oppression of, of Palestinians is really widespread. It's, it's, it's by no means just limited to the usual suspects this time around. I feel like potentially a tide could be could be turning. I think it's really difficult to say, as Nasser pointed out, uh, I think oftentimes when there are these flashpoints, uh, these sieges, you know, obviously there is an ongoing constant violence taking place, but we often see a lot of, you know, people speaking out and we see, you know, sort of a bit more awareness being built and it, feel, it often feels like things are about to change. Um, and then sort of once... there's a kind of ceasefire, we go back to that status quo. And I think the fact that Nasser mentioned that the older generation are feeling differently about this is really significant. But I think, you know, the fact that we are seeing 
people speaking out now, um, particularly in the UK. And, and the, the, I think the, the shift in Congress in the US is absolutely a watershed because there's always been a very different approach in Europe. There's always been a much stronger Palestine solidarity movement in Europe uh, than in the US. It's always been very difficult. But the fact that we're seeing people speaking out is so significant because there's been so much thrown at stigmatizing being internationalist in public life, um, in the public sphere. It's been portrayed, especially over the past few years, it's been portrayed as everything from, you know, snowflake wokeness or like, you know, bleeding heart liberalism to actually very dangerous, where anyone who, people who express internationalist solidarity, especially with Palestinians, is marked as kind of dangerous and, and to be kind of excommunicated from public life. So the fact that people are still speaking out and that, you know, that attempt to stigmatize internationalism in that way is sort of not, hasn't stuck is incredibly reassuring because I was concerned. I was worried that, you know, it had been effective. But I think, you know, contextualizing, especially this, in, and, you know, even though Biden's response here is, it's a slight nudge, but it's still, you know, entirely insufficient because um, you can't really call for a ceasefire between two parties when you're practically drowning the much more powerful party um, or the much more powerful side in money and weapons. It doesn't really make sense. But I think another reason that, you know, the diaspora, the diasporic and also the growing anti-racist consciousness, particularly in the global north, in the US and Europe, is also important because we need to understand how rooted in racism the justificatory mechanisms that are used for occupation are, you know, in what ways has clear attack and clear oppression been successfully framed as self-defense? And it comes down to this idea that Arabs, Palestinians, Muslims, people who, you know, we are grouped together on the basis that we are something to be afraid of, that we're inherently dangerous, inherent, irrationally barbaric, and that preemptive violence is required and inevitable and natural um, because of who we are. And that is why this violence is indiscriminate. That is why it's constant, because it's the mere existence of Palestinians that is deemed threatening. And there is something about, you know, the use of rancid water being sprayed into people's, into, on people in a way that sticks to their bodies for, for so, you know, as they kind of, for days afterwards, that is so kind of symbolic of that. And I think that that, that awareness of the role that racism plays, of how, you know, this idea of reframing and being able to successfully frame occupation as self-defense and how rooted that is in and how much it resonates with those scripts of fear and disgust in which Arabs and Muslims are enmeshed and how powerful that is. And I think that that growing anti-racist consciousness that we've been seeing since 2015 has played a really significant role in how diaspora, diasporic communities, whether Arabs or not Arabs, are responding and, and, and understanding uh, really what's going on here and is cutting through a lot of that media discourse. Cutting through that that media discourse, it, it can feel like a bit of a barrier has been broken. So maybe I'm being overly hopeful today. Of course, we do love your super chats. We are also completely dependent um, on our supporters. Um, if you are a supporter, thank you so much. If not, please do go to navaramedia.com slash support and donate the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. Final story. The Labour Party has been struggling 
of late to explain what it stands for. This has damaged the personal reputation of party leader Keir Starmer and has also left shadow cabinet members in awkward positions when they're asked about Labour's vision and they have nothing to say. The farce continued when Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth appeared on Good Morning Britain to give this astonishing answer. Have you guys sat down yet and decided what policy... I mean, I mean have, you, have you spoken to Keir Starmer? Have you sat in a room and gone, right, guys, what, what does the Labour Party stand for? Have you had that conversation yet? Well, of course, we have, we have our shadow ministerial... So uh, you know, our sort of can, cabinet you, can, you, can you share it with us, then? What does um, the Labour Party uh, now stand for? I, I, I can't... I can't yeah. <laughs> They're confidential meetings, I can't... Confidential <laughs> meetings? You're a... You're a <laughs> political... Share it with no, the no, political no, no, party. It's very clear. The Labour Party, Party is... So it's confidential. You know, normally when Keir Starmer gets asked, what's your vision? Our vision, he says something completely banal. You know, our vision is we're going to look outwards. Our vision is we're going to speak to the country. You know, it means absolutely nothing, but at least it kind of, you know, it works syntactically, even if it doesn't have any content. Jonathan Ashworth just went, it's confidential. Sorry, uh, we, we may or may not have a vision, but if we did, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in his defense, uh, not many people were defending him, by the way. But if you were to defend him, you say, look, we're four, four years out from a general election. There was a very important set of elections earlier this month. And the Labour Party was surprised that in those elections, they did really poorly when you know, what they stand for is confidential. Right. So, so you got voters say, should I vote for the, the Conservative Party, who are offering me a vaccine rollout, who are offering to reindustrialize the north of England, who are you know offering to make Britain great again, or should I vote for the Labour Party, whose policies are confidential? You know, is it any surprise that Labour tanked in those elections when you've got the Shadow Health Secretary, you know, very, very important job, being asked what Labour's vision is, what it stands for, and saying, well, that was discussed, but those meetings were confidential. After getting teased by the host for his ridiculous answer, Ashworth tries to recover by giving a more concrete response to the vision question. Let's take a look. The Labour Party understands that we have got to speak to the British people about their priorities and their interests and their concerns. And we're launching a big policy review, which we're going to take to the country and we're going to engage the country in a, di in a discussion and a debate. And we're going to listen to the country about what it is they want, how they want this country to change. Because when I travel across the country, and I see it for myself in my own Leicester constituency and where I live in Leicester, that we can do much better than we're doing at the moment. Our schools can be much better. Our NHS can be much better. We've got nearly 5 million people on the waiting list. We need to sort that out. We can do much better to make, our, make the air that we breathe cleaner and our communities greener. And we can do more to invest in making our communities safer. And we've got to do more in the economy so people have well-paid jobs, not relying on low-paid temporary work or zero-hours contracts okay. so they can okay. buy their own home. Right. These uh, are big issues that we're going to be focusing on in the weeks and months ahead. Okay. Yeah. It is ironic, though, isn't it, Jonathan Ashworth, when you say we need to tell the electorate what we stand for but we can't yet because it's confidential. Mm. Well, I was talking about the particular, <laughs> particular meeting, but, I mean, look, we are going to be having a big policy review uh, with the country, and, of course, the meetings aren't that confidential. That's more of a sort of throwaway comment. But, look, <laughs> we're having a big policy debate and discussion with the country, and you'll see Labour coming out with exciting ideas. I have to say, I kind of preferred the answer that it was confidential. You know, at least it was more memorable, because what did he say there? He tries to, you know, recover himself, save himself, says we've got to speak to the British people about their priorities and their interests and their concerns. 
do you not have any priorities, interests, or concerns? You know, the, the point of politics and political leadership is you have some concerns and you talk to the electorate about them. And yeah, you then listen to the electorate's concerns and you consider whether you should change your policies or whether you should modify them. But you don't go to the electorate with absolutely nothing. Because if you go to them with absolutely nothing, then what are you bringing to the table? You're not bringing anything to the table, right? The Labour there are not bringing anything to the table. When he does talk about more concrete things, it's just a list of a bunch of nice things. We'll make schools better. We'll make the NHS better. We'll make the air we breathe cleaner. Literally anyone could say that. You know, you can be from any political party say, oh, we'll make the NHS better. It's just a list of nice things. You have to explain why the Tories can't deliver that, why the Tories haven't delivered that. You can't just say, oh, we'll make everything better. What's your vision? Oh, we're the make things better party. It doesn't stack up. I mean, it feels like Groundhog Day. It feels like every time I come on Tiski, there's another one of these interviews. And my question is, how have they not workshopped a better response to this? It's been several weeks now. Like, this is not a gotcha question. This is not unpredictable. Like, it's been several weeks now of these shambolic media appearances where they have been challenged on this. And I don't understand how Keir Starmer has all of the discipline in the world when it comes to, you know, what socialist MPs tweet about and, you know, socialist party members and expelling people and all of this, and yet doesn't have the the ability to discipline his own front bench into effectively answering a question that everyone is asking and has been asking for several weeks. And that should be really, you know, should be easy to answer. But also it makes me think about you know, going back to the earlier story in, in this this show, where, you know, that 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 Starmerite tactic when he challenges the government, quote unquote, of just sort of basically endorsing the fundamental political and ideological values that guide what the government does, but just sort of saying that the government is incompetent at, at delivering it, that doesn't work when you look significantly more incompetent. You need a better tactic. And I think also that's the kind of strategic question. But then thinking about actually, you know, the kind of moral and the ethical and the political question here. We are living in a moment when there is so much space for really transformative vision and for really transformative thinking. You know, we've got multiple crises that are overlapping with each other from, you know, climate to to COVID to the crisis in employment in, you know, the fact that so much of the work that people do is not good, not enough to sort of put to adequately look after themselves and to adequately have security and stability. And this is one of those historical moments, you know, once in not just a generation, but several generations um, opportunity where the, the contradictions and the problems in the existing system are being sharpened and are being lived through in really visceral ways. And it's in these moments when resistance out of and replacing of those systems can be consolidated, whether it's, you know, through transformative visions around work, whether it's transformative visions around climate change, and you know, ecology or or decentralization. And we have to remember that, that this is how neoliberalism itself gained power. It was through approaching a moment in crisis with transformative, obviously, we believe for, for the negative, transformative visions building the power to make that actually happen. It's not easy. It's not a struggle. It's an up. It's not easy. It's, you know, it's an uphill struggle. Um, But it's also incumbent upon us. It's our historical duty as the generation living in this particular moment, where we meet this cross section of crises to be up to that job. 
And for Labour, you know, something called the Labour Party to be languishing in this moment and to be so indifferent and so anemic and to, to, to have no ambition other than to simply lower the expectations of what can change. It's a giant abdication of that duty. And what it will mean is that the space to reinvent and reconsider the way that we live our lives is going to be left to much more dangerous forces. And I think history is going to be very harsh on those who didn't have the metal and sat behind and let that happen. We're going to go to our final um, nugget of information for you tonight, which is new ratings, which has come out on Keir Starmer, um, his, his personal ratings. This is from YouGov, you know, asking people how they assess um, Keir Starmer according to various criteria. Um, and it's not looking particularly good. Um, trustworthy or untrustworthy. 26% think he's trustworthy. 36% think he's untrustworthy. We certainly do. Maybe they've been watching Navarra Media because the guy breaks every single one of his promises. Likeable, dislikable, also not going well. 24% say he's likeable. 39% say he's dislikable. When it comes to decisiveness, the direction of travel is very worrying for Keir Starmer. Um, since March the 22nd, um, the number of people who think he ha is decisive has gone down seven percentage points. It's now at 18%. And the people who think he's indecisive has gone up nine percentage points to 48%. Equally worrying when it comes to strength. 14% of people think he's strong. That's down eight points um, since 22nd of March. 47% um, think he's weak, which is up 11. And then finally, and this is the real, I suppose, knockout blow for Keir Starmer, whose whole image was supposed to be based on him being um, a competent leader. He might not stand for anything, but at least he's competent. Well, not according to the public. Um, so currently 28% of the public say he is competent, which is down seven points from March. 35% say he's incompetent, which is up seven points. Dahlia, this is very, very damning for the man, isn't it? I am starting to think for the first time, well, I've been thinking this for a couple of weeks now, um, that Keir Starmer probably won't make it until the next general election. How long do you think he's got? Oh, yeah, I think, I. to be honest, I think from the beginning of his tenure, I was like, this guy is not going to make it because he just doesn't, he so rapidly lost that base that he made up especially when he uh, suspended Jeremy Corbyn. I think if he made it to this time next year, I think that would be a good, that would be a good run for him. Where will the leadership Forget challenge come from? That's the question. <laughs> Angela Rayner, deputy leader. She doesn't like the guy. Classic You can get move. the support um, within 12 <laughs> months, I reckon. That's my betting tip for you there. Let's go to a comment. Andrew Bergman tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour. How is it possible that Jonathan Ashworth is even more useless at public relations under a leadership that he isn't ideologically opposed to? A harsh but quite entertaining comment there. It is very true. There are so many of these people currently in the shadow cabinet who sort of say, oh, yeah, we, we feel so free now. You know, we really we really relate to the leader. We can express ourselves. We don't have to pretend we want the leader of the Labour Party to be prime minister. They're supposed to be in their element. They go on television. They can't answer a basic question. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe they'll start to realize actually it wasn't that bad being a front bench 
shadow minister with a leader who actually believed in something because at least you had something to say. At least you had a reason to turn up to the TV studio. Now you might as well just stay at home. Might as well send a cardboard cutout of yourself. It's going to be slightly less awkward than when they ask you, what do you stand for? What's your position on this? And you say, oh, uh, it's confidential. I don't know. All I know is that we're going to look out to the country. Uh, we'll work out our position once we've done a focus group in this particular constituency that we're desperate to win back in 2024. I'd prefer to stay at home. Let's put it like that. Dahlia, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you on this Wednesday evening. It's been wonderful. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, it is always a pleasure. And thank you so much for watching Tisky Sour tonight. It's always a pleasure to be in your company. We will be back on Friday. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.